Hello and welcome to another episode of Victor's Corner. I am your host, Victor Omoyo, one half of the Codex Prime podcast. And today is Wednesday, June 28th, 2017. And I am very glad to be back with you all once again. Um, as promised last week, we were uh, going to come back uh, today uh, for another uh for another weekly dose of nerd culture goodness here at the Codex Prime podcast, but due to some scheduling conflicts on Carl's end, uh, this will be a solo show this week. But we hope to be back again next week, as long as we continue to become, you know, be be consistent. You know, bringing you that hot nerd fire each and every week. Um, then you know, I think we'll be okay. Uh, just for as for today, as for today's episode of Victor's Corner, I do have a couple of film reviews that I'll get into momentarily, as well as some of the latest uh, nerd headlines this week, including some drama on Lucas on Disney and Lucasfilm's end concerning the Han Solo film, which is slated to come out next year. Now, uh, since I have since we're on Facebook Live, all let me see, three of y'all, uh, well. Two. What we, I don't, I don't, see, I don't know. See, I'm looking at the Facebook Live right now, and I'm looking at my feed. And uh, since I'm the one who uh, who started the feed, I can't see comments. So that's why I have my smartphone out, and I'm trying to log into the log into Facebook so I can, you know, see uh, people's comments in real time. Uh, I'm not sure how this works exactly, uh, but you know, we'll 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 figure it out as we go along, I suppose. Oh, the joys of technology! Isn't it fun? Okay, so let me see three reviews. All right, and a comment. All right, and uh, we ha- I see that we have uh, John Haponic and Stephen Ho. Thank you guys. Welcome to the welcome to the show. Uh, so yeah, so I got a couple of film reviews uh, for you all uh, as of now. Uh, first of which, I really want to start with this uh, pretty uh, fascinating documentary, which is available on Hulu, and it's called Batman and Bill. And uh, this is a documentary which is uh, directed by uh, Don Argot and and Sheena M. Joyce. And when you think about Batman, um, wh- who's the uh, creator that first comes to mind? Um, normally, I mean, people will think that Bob Kane is the sole creator of Batman. That's the name that always comes to mind. And then when you read any uh, publication that features Batman, whether it's a comic book or a graphic novel, or even if you watch any of the films, um, be it uh, Christopher Nolan's trilogy, the Tim Burton films, any of the DC animated films, or even the animated series, you always see uh, Batman created by Bob Kane. But as uh, Batman and Bill, as the title indicates, turns out that Bob Kane was not the only person who created Batman and the whole universe as we know it. It turns out that there was a co-creator uh, by the name of Bill Finger, who for decades, uh, it wasn't until last year, he never received the credit that was due to him. And uh, and, and, the, and and the documentary gets into why. And, uh, what, what, and the thing that drives this documentary is... Uh, uh, this man named uh, Mark Tyler Nobleman, who was an author, and he created uh, this uh, book called Bill the Boy Wonder, as well as uh, uh, Boys of Steel, which is the uh, a biographical uh, book about the creators of Superman, uh, Jerry Siegel and Joel Schuster. And uh, Mark Nobleman, he's an author who, for years, the question bugged him as a Batman fan and as, a, as an author and as a, as a comics fan and creator himself, why was it that Bob Kane received sole credit and not Bill Finger? And so for years, he actually did a lot of research on Bill Finger's life, who he was, even got so far as to uh, contact friends and family and even those in the, in the industry who, 
who knew him and knew of him at the time. And it's a pretty it's a pretty insightful investigative uh, documentary that kind of uncovers this you know long hidden legacy of Bill Finger. And what was what was fascinating about the, this documentary was that even though Bob Kane received was the one who received sole credit for creating Batman, and he was the one who was the who publicly put himself out there as promoting Batman, he was the one who reaped all the monetary benefits of marketing and licensing the Batman name and the franchise. Bill Finger, on the other hand, received absolutely no money, no compensation for his work. And in fact, he died penniless all alone. And he was, uh, for years, it was believed that he was buried in a pauper's grave, you know, among other like homeless individuals and whatnot, and people who have no next of kin. And, and for, and for decades, it was long thought that, you know, uh, Bill Finger's, you know, legacy ended with him. And as you watch the documentary, it's fascinating to to discover just how much of Batman that Bob, that that Bill Finger himself created, all the elements that we know of in the Batman mythos. In fact, there was one early scene in the film that kind of stood out to me the most was where, uh, you know, it showed Bob Kane, you know, trying to create the Batman character, and his and his creation, his initial version of Batman was rather was rather lame. It was basically this um some dude in this red this red uh spandex getup uh with black underpants and like a black uh mask. Um and he had like stiff Batman stiff bat wings. It wasn't even a cape, it was just stiff wings. And when Bill Finger took a look at that, he was like, "All right, first of all, you got to change the color because he's a superhero." who's who's representing a nocturnal creature so what's with the red he's going to stand out in in the dark so so bill finger was the one who who changed the the initial color of the costume from red to gray and later dark gray and black and then he he took off the uh, stiff bat wings and replaced it with a with a cape which resembled bat wings in in the in the some of the earlier drawings of batman and also made that black and he also he also replaced the uh, the lame mask with a cowl and he added bat ears to it, and then, hence, and hence, Batman was was born. And and it all, and it and it and it doesn't stop there. It does not stop there. In fact, Bill Finger actually created much of the Rogues Gallery. For example, uh, the Penguin. Um, let's see, the Penguin, the Joker, I believe Catwoman, uh, among among many others. Uh, he even he even created the the initial origin story. Of Batman, because when Batman was first published, there wasn't really much of an origin story to him. But Bill Finger later created the tragic origin story of Bruce Wayne, of being you know a young boy who who witnessed his parents being gunned down. He created that that uh, that backstory that gives Batman his weight, and he even created the Dark Knight moniker, you know, the Dark Knight nickname that that we all know Batman as as well. So, so even though Bob Kane for years uh, received sole credit. It was Bill Finger who really put the finishing touches to the whole Batman universe as we know it, and 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 in fact, um, throughout the documentary, when you hear and see clips of 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 Bob Kane, you know, being you know in the public spotlight, hobnobbing with other creators and celebrities, you know, reaping the benefits of of uh, what he claimed to be his work and his work alone, you know, it it, it leaves a a bad taste in your mouth as a Batman fan because it's like, I think about the uh, the quote that um, that 
Bruce Wayne himself said in the, in the film Batman Begins, where he said, it's not who I am underneath, it's what I do that defines me. And by that metric, I gotta say, Bob Kane was kind of a shit. Because, you know, here was a guy who could have easily, you know, given Bill Finger his his due and, you know, enabled him to reap the benefits alongside with him. And mind you, and mind you, uh, when when Bob Kane uh, and Bill Finger were, were working in the industry in like the you know forties, fifties, and sixties, you know many many uh, comic book companies you know employed many ghost artists and ghost writers. So you had many people who actually did the groundwork of creating these universes and creating these characters, and you know and and at the end as and the, because of the way the businesses were run, only one person received the credit. So Bob Kane, he may have come up with maybe at least a couple of the ideas himself at best, but because he was receiving sole credit, he got out, he got all the benefits. Bill Finger himself got none of the reward. And in fact, there was another scene in the, in the documentary as well, which was a little heartbreaking breaking was where uh, they touch on the classic Adam West uh, Batman show from 1966. And Bill Finger, he was working with another uh, screenwriter, Charles Sinclair, and Bill Finger actually wrote wrote an episode, one episode uh, for the Batman uh, TV series with Adam West. And um, as they were writing it, uh, Charles Sinclair he he put he put his name first in the credit list, it, like written by Charles Sinclair and uh, Bill Finger. And while Bill Finger was looking at this, he was like, you know, just for once, I want to receive some sole credit. So can I? Can I? Can he? So he asked Charles Sinclair. He's like can you put my name first and then put your name underneath? And then Sinclair was like, all right, fine, no problem. And so when so when this particular episode aired, uh, Bill Finger saw his name listed listed at the top, uh, written by Bill Finger and Charles Sinclair. And that's where he kind of, the documentary said that he kind of teared up, and that's where he, for once, received like a small, a small semblance of victory, like a small sense of vindication that, yeah, I made this. This is my universe. I'm seeing this on screen, and 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 also another another great element of the documentary too was where it, where it was um you know depicting you know uh you know Bob Kane and Bill Finger's heyday you know it actually it actually um when it when it creates scenes to kind of represent what happened like dramatizations if you will it actually uh, unfolds in the form of these uh, golden age and silver age comics art style. And it kind of unfolds in that way, which which I thought was really cool, which kind of adds to that adds to that um, you know old school uh, touch, and um, and 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 watching this documentary, you know it, you know it it really it really kind of shows how many artists, you know, they 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 there's like there's like this there's like this divide this deep divide between art and commerce where there are many artists who are in it not just to make money. But just to you know, because they have something within themselves that they want to put out there to to the public, to the universe, and they want to get their you know creative you know creative fruits you know out there for people to enjoy, and so that's where that's where uh, where business comes in, where they kind of like butts heads with that, where nowadays if you do want to make it out into the public you know not only is that hard enough but it's like you also have to have a business sense in your head so you know as an artist you kind of feel like you have to be part mercenary if you you know you know what i mean where 
where it's not just about the art. You also have to think about okay, how can I how can I market my work? How can I find ways to get sole credit for my work? How can I make money off my work? It's not just about the work itself, and and that and that kind of falls into a slippery slope where you have some artists who feel that. You know, if I'm not making money off my work, then my work itself is worthless, and that's kind of a and that's kind of a tragic thing when you think about it. But at that said, all artists, all especially professional artists, do deserve their due compensation as well. I mean, nobody should work solely for free. Um, but uh, but watching this documentary, Batman and Bill, it's a it's a pretty fascinating look into uh, not only his life and legacy, but it also ends on a good note. In fact. Um, in fact, uh, starting start as of last year, any any Batman any Batman you know, uh, story or merchandise, be it film or graphic novel, uh, now Bill Finger actually receives co credit with Bob Kane. And the first film that that actually that actually features Bill Finger's name is a uh, unfortunately Batman versus Superman: Dawn of Justice, which is a lame ass film, but. The most positive takeaway was that when you watch the opening credits of that film, you see Batman characters created by Bob Kane and Bill Finger. And that's the first film that actually features his name. So all subsequent Batman films and shows and graphic novels and comics from here on out will feature Bill Finger's name. And so in that in that case, you know, it's it's thanks to to the efforts of um, uh, Mark Tyler Nobleman, Nobleman, as well as. Uh, Bill Finger's heirs and his only daughter Athena, uh, who actually pushed for, uh, for for Bill Finger to get credit, and you know I think this uh, documentary is a really fascinating look into that. Um, I don't know I don't know if DC if if they will if they can retroactively uh, put Bill Finger's name in in previous versions of Batman if they make more uh, new copies or new prints of previous films like The Dark Knight or Batman I don't I think it's going to take a lot of work but at least we at least we get to see some you know vindication in that respect so I do recommend checking out Batman and Bill it is a Hulu documentary it's available on Hulu. Um, it's a pretty fascinating looks, ninety minutes, ninety minutes long, and um, you know it's a it's it's a pretty good uh, it's a pretty uh, a fascinating insight into uh, not only uh, Bob Kane and Bill Finger and the Batman mythos and the legacy, but also a nice uh, look into the Golden Age and Silver Age of comics as well, and that and that bit of history. Uh, yeah. So it looks like we have uh, Freddie uh, and and Aaliyah watching. So welcome. Welcome you two to uh, Victor's Corner. Um, I do have another film uh, that I do recommend, and this one's a little bit hard to find. Uh, the only way you can watch it is uh, via Amazon. Uh, if you go on Amazon or Amazon Prime, you can rent it for like I think it's like four ninety nine or five ninety nine. Uh, but this is a French Belgian film, which I'm sure that nobody I know personally would actually give a chance. Give it a chance because you know. It's probably too disgusting for them. It's a film called Raw. I'm not talking about Monday Night Raw. I'm talking about Raw. And this is a film uh, starring uh, Garance Marillier, uh, who plays this, uh, this, this uh, college-bound uh, young woman named Justine. And, uh, and this film was written and directed by Julia Ducournau. And in Raw, uh, this, this young girl named Justine, she's a, a lifelong vegetarian, her her parents are strict vegetarians as well, and she's she's starting college, so she's uh, you know starting her uh, make to make her way through veterinary school, this veterinary college, 
And in this college, you know, she's subject, she and a bunch of, and the rest of these uh, incoming freshmen, these rookies, as they're called, they're subject to these really bizarre and grotesque hazing rituals. Um, uh, some of which include, you know, getting, getting um, cow's blood, getting splashed on them and, and, other, and other things. Uh, one, one of the hazing rituals involves eating raw, raw rabbit kidney, of which Julia has no choice but to eat. And when she eats the, when she eats this piece of raw rabbit meat, she de- she develops this uh, this allergic allergic reaction. You know, she gets rashes all, rashes all over her skin, but then she eventually recovers. But then soon after, this lifelong vegetarian Justine, she starts developing a taste for raw meat. So there's another so there's a scene where she sneaks into her roommate's fridge and she gets this raw piece of chicken and just tears into it like a slim jim and just like just like going to town on it. And then you can see the look in her eye that this is not going to be enough. So she starts developing a stronger taste, if you will, for other forms of raw meat, particularly the living kind, and most particularly the human kind. So throughout the film, you're watching her succumb or rather or rather uh, start to discover, you know, her inner cannibal. And so throughout the film, it starts to become this macabre and disturbing uh, journey into uh, self-discovery and finding out who she is and, you know, embracing that inner savage. And it's a, it's, it's a dark film and it's really, it's both dark and it's also rather comedic at the same time. It's a film that, you know, you kind of engage with, with nervous laughter because you're not too sure where the story is going to go. And I don't feel like I, I don't want to reveal some of the, some of the more disturbing scenes that happen uh, in the film. Cause I think that would kind of dull the impact if you do choose to watch this film, which I do recommend by the way. Um, Raw is a film that is really interesting in that it is about self-discovery. Like it takes that whole trope of of a young person, a young woman in particular, trying to find herself, trying to establish her identity, trying to make her way in the world, and you know, discovering what she's good at and embracing her inner, you know, her inner nature and her inner talents, and then, you know, what she's capable of bringing to the world. And you know, we've seen that kind of you know that kind of storyline uh, developed before in, in numerous like coming of age stories, but not quite like in raw raw takes it to the nth nth degree in many respects and and throughout the and throughout the film you're kind of seeing her her just just trying just just embracing her inner cannibal in fact there's another there's another scene which involves her older sister um attempting to give her you know a brazilian wax and that goes awkwardly to say to say the least and um and that particular scene you know there's some really disturbing uh, revelations in that scene uh, moving forward after that. And, and, and watching this film, it was really, it, it had, had the, it had the appeal of a car accident. It's like, I wanted to look away. It was really disturbing. There were times in which I was thinking, should I continue watching this? But then, especially there's a whole scene where she's eating her hair, her hair. And then in the next scene, she's vomiting, vomiting it all up in a toilet, kind of like a cat would, like she's coughing up a giant hairball. And I was thinking to myself, man, is should I should I continue watching this scene, this this movie? Then I'm like, yeah, yeah, I I, I will. I mean, but uh, but you know, I, I will say that like it's a it's a film that it's 
it is disturbing. It is gross. It's not for everybody, but it is well made. It is well directed, and I think that the the, the director Julia De Kernow does a great job in, you know, in you know ratcheting up the tension. It's not about shock value too. So this is not like a, it's not it's not a horror film that's just you know shock value for its own sake. It does have a point to make about you know being a coming of age story, and it's a film that. And it's a film that I really can't recommend to anybody I know. I think, uh, like, for example, uh, Carl, uh, who says, uh, what self-respecting human being wants to watch a movie about cannibalism? And please tell me you wasn't eating, you weren't eating when while you were watching this. Well, I was I was eating. I was eating a, a turkey and cheese sandwich with goat cheese, which is, and, and, and avocado dressing from Whole Foods, which smacks. Um, but it, it was it was really good. Um I'm I'm pretty sure uh, John Haponic uh would not give this a chance. I mean, he refuses to see the to watch the Neon Demon, who knows why. Uh but Raw is a film that I I do recommend. It is a dark film. It's not for everybody. Um if if you're soft, then I suppose, you know, there are other films you can you can watch, you know, in your safe space, but uh, I do recommend checking it out. It, it is one of the most uh, distinct uh, features of the year so far, and it is available currently only on Amazon uh, via rental. I'm pretty sure we'll find it on Blu-ray eventually later this year. Um, but if it is if if it, if it is made more easily available, uh, that I do recommend checking it out. Raw, that's the film. Raw and Batman and Bill. Uh, so yeah, those are my two film reviews, and uh, we got a couple, got a few, uh, few nerd uh, headlines to get into here. Um, first of which involves a bit of nostalgia for for y'all out there. Uh, apparently, uh, it is true. Uh, Nintendo has confirmed that they are launching the SNES Classic, uh, which launches in September twenty nine uh, this year for seventy nine ninety nine. Uh, that's eighty bucks for you all out there. Uh, the miniature SNES console will in- will include 21 games, including the unreleased Star Fox 2. And the 20 remaining games included are Contra 3, The Alien Wars, Donkey Kong Country, Earthbound, Final Fantasy 3, F-Zero, Kirby Superstar, Kirby Dream Course, The Legend of Zelda, A Link to the Past, Mega Man X, Secret of Mana, Star Fox 1, Street Fighter 2 Turbo, Super Castlevania 4, Super Ghouls and Ghosts, Super Mario Kart, Super Mario RPG, Super Mario World, Super Metroid, Super Punch-Out, and Yoshi's Island. Now that's a pretty that's a pretty uh, hot hot lineup right there, you know. I mean, can't I think you can't do much better than that, um especially if it's all like well, mainly first party titles. Uh Nintendo plans to ship the console, however, only from September 29 until the end of the year. Um, but but they do they did but Nintendo did state that they will produce significantly more SNES Classic consoles than, than they did with the NES Classic. So they're you know so the SNES Classic will be at least easier to purchase, or you'll it's easier to find more copies than the NES Classic. So 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 Nintendo says, but with their track record of artificial scarcity, eh, I kind of find that hard to believe. Uh, Nintendo did say that uh, their long-term efforts will be focused on the, on the Nintendo Switch, hence the limited window in which you can purchase this console. Now, uh, 
Now, before I get into uh, my thoughts on the SNES Classic, uh, Carl wrote here, he says, Raw Challenge, eat a full meal while watching that movie. That's no problem. I can totally do that. I mean, who who wouldn't, unless you're soft? Uh, but anyway, uh, the SNES Classic, I do... I am a, I am a little bit uh, interested in in this console, um, especially I think the selling point for me is Star Fox Two. Uh, Star Fox Two was a game that was completed by by Nintendo and Argonaut Games. It was supposed to come out in ninety uh, five or ninety six, but uh, it was canceled because uh, because the N sixty four was coming out. And uh, they were also working on Star Fox 64. So they figured there wasn't any point in releasing a 16-bit sequel to Star Fox. Um, uh, for those who have the means, uh, Star Fox 2 is available via ROM and emulator. So you can actually still play it right now, you know, to this right now, you know, as I'm talking. You don't have to wait until September 29 to play it. Um, but you didn't hear that from me. Um... I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to purchase an SNES Classic. Uh, most likely not, to be honest. You know, I think that I think that this whole nostalgia train uh, that that Nintendo is on first with the NES Classic and the, and the uh, SNES Classic. You know, first of all, if you do have a PC and you know and emulators and ROMs, you can literally have all these games and more. You can literally have the entire SNES library at your fingertips if you wanted to now i know there are some some purists who say that oh you know they're not about roms and all this they'd rather play the real game which is fine but i mean what's more practical you know hunting hunting an old console you know spending spending the money much of which prices are probably inflated too you know spending what 50 60 on a on a, on a snes console and then purchasing each of the games for like what 10 20 30 bucks a pop maybe 40 to 50 or more for the more rare titles or you can just sit down you know at your pc and play every single game if you wanted to so i'm told you know not not that i would know personally but i have seen it um i think that i think that the snes classic is good for uh not only for retro gamers but also for you know the current generation of young gamers who perhaps have never played any of these games I think I would highly recommend playing Super Mario RPG, which is, you know, one still a not only a classic but also one of the best RPGs I've ever played. And you know what? I will I will say that I would much rather prefer playing Super Mario RPG than Final Fantasy VII, which is which is a fact. I mean, you know what? Now that I think about it, I, I, Final Fantasy VII, you know justifiably is is considered a classic but i think that if you if if the chips were down if i really had to choose between which rpg i would be stuck with stuck with playing on a desert island i would most i would definitely pick super, super mario rpg over final fantasy 7 so there it is buy on super mario rpg sell on final fantasy 7 but that's just my quick aside so yeah S snes classic um you know, if, if anybody if anybody's planning to buy it, hey, let me know your let me know your thoughts and let me know your stories of you know waiting in line and you know battling people to the to the death at Best Buy to get your hands on the console. Um, other other nostalgia news right here: uh, Sega Forever uh, has been has been released. Uh, Sega has opened their Sega Forever service, which is online, which will offer every Sega developed con uh, game 
for free on the iOS and Android. Uh, Sega Forever will offer games from every Sega console ever made, from the Genesis and the Master System to the Saturn and the Dreamcast. Uh, the current games available for Sega Forever are Sonic the Hedgehog, Altered Beast, Fantasy Star 2, Kid Chameleon, and Comics Zone. Um, yeah, this is this is pretty cool. You know, if you have a if you have an Android tablet uh, or an iOS tablet, then yeah, uh, feel free to play those games to your heart's content. I do believe that you can buy some uh, Bluetooth controllers as well. So rather than having to, you know, wrestle with the touch screen, um, I kind of I kind of dig this. You know, um, even though I I only have a I have an Android phone, so I'm not gonna sit there and just you know try to play any of these games on a tiny screen. Um, you know my thoughts about Sonic the Hedgehog, you know, uh, on last week's uh, last week's podcast. Uh, but I think that it's a it's a good initial lineup of of games. Um, uh, Comic Zone, Comic Zone is I like the concept of Comic Zone a lot. Uh, it is one of the most difficult games I've played. Um, uh, but fortunately, I have I did beat it with uh, with the use of uh, cheat codes. You know, hey, what are you gonna do? You know, I I I, I did my best. I I got to. I got to the third level of Comic Zone, you know, without without cheats, and then I guess got stuck there for a while. So I was just like, you know what, screw it. I'm just gonna, you know, finish finish the game through with cheats, with an invincibility cheat, and see the ending. And I did, and it was all right. Uh, we got some comments here. Uh, John Haponic is rather incredulous at my claim of uh, Super Mario RPG being the better one. Uh, John Haponic says Final Fantasy is the greatest, and he would much rather prefer Final Fantasy VII in a heartbeat. Good grief! Hey, listen, I'm not hating on Final Fantasy VII. You know, I'm not hating hating on it at all. It's a it's a damn good RPG. It is a it is a classic. But I much I I just prefer Super Mario RPG. That's just me. You know, tomato, tomato. Let's call the whole thing off. Um, we've got some other news. Uh, there are some latest news of Sony's Spider-Man Cinematic Universe. Uh, Sony is planning to create spin-off films of Spidey villains Craven the Hunter and Mysterio. Hmm. Uh, Carnage will also be the main villain in the Venom film, which stars Tom Hardy. And uh, Sony film producer Amy Pascal also confirmed that Venom, as well as the Silver Sable and Black Cat movie, which is which will be directed by Gina Prince Bythewood, those films will not be part of the MCU. So it appears that um, so I would assume that uh, Craven the Hunter and Mysterio will also be part of Sony's MCU and not the official MCU, which you know, which is which is all right. Um, as for a Craven the Hunter movie, uh, you know. It, you, you never know. It, it it could have potential. As far as a Mysterio movie is concerned, uh, I was thinking about the best use of Mysterio, but then again, it it would have to be, you know, it it would have to be part of uh, the MCU. But I was thinking that if they were to introduce uh, Mysterio to the on-screen Marvel universe, I think that the best the best way to do it would be to introduce him with not not within Spider-Man, but within the Daredevil. Uh, Netflix universe because um, I think that the best use of the Mysterio character for me was uh, Kevin Smith's Guardian Devil uh, run of, of Daredevil in 2003 or so and that featured Mysterio as like the as the villain that was behind you know uh, Matt Murdock's you know torment in that whole in that in that brief Guardian Devil run and I thought that was pretty inventive and that for me that was the best use of that character now, as for a Mysterio solo film, it could have potential if you, 
you know, if you, you know, if you develop the character as well as Craven the Hunter more than just, you know, just two dimensional villains, you know, that were that are just there to be victims of Spidey's Spider Man's, you know, you know, shit talking and, you know, web slinging. But hey, you never know. You never know where they might take these uh these these heroes or villains rather. Also, there are some uh, latest uh, details of Sony's upcoming animated Spider-Man film. Um, Phil Lord and Chris Miller, uh, which we'll which we'll hear from again in just a moment, uh, they wrote the screenplay for the upcoming Spider- Spider-Man, Spider-Man animated film. Um, Bob Parachetti and Peter Ramsey are also directing it. Uh, Leif Schreiber is voicing the yet-to-be-named villain, and Shamik Moore is voicing Miles Morales, aka Spider-Man, which is a pretty cool choice uh mahershala ali and brian tyree henry will voice aaron and jefferson davis respectively miles uncle and father and uh this animated film comes out december 14th 2018 hey you know what you know what? i think it's cool that uh, we're gonna we're gonna see uh, uh miles morales uh, albeit in an animated form um you know, if uh, if if Sony's if since Sony is creating their separate um, MCU universe, which is a part, which is totally separate from the Marvel Cinematic Universe from uh, Marvel Studios and Disney, why not just have a separate Spider-Man altogether? This is where you can introduce Miles Morales. Um, maybe you can cast Shamik Moore as Miles Morales in the live version and have him fight Venom at some point. Just an idea. And. Uh, Last bit of news here, which I want to get into just a little bit. Uh, there's been some drama uh, behind the scenes for the Star Wars Han Solo movie, uh, in which the which the the directors of Phil Lord and Chris Miller have been fired uh, by Lucasfilm uh, executive uh, Kathleen Kennedy. Uh, so it apparently uh, last Tuesday it was reported that uh, Lord and Miller, who are the directors of Twenty One Jump Street, uh, Twenty Two Jump Street, as well as the Lego Movie. Uh, they were both fired by Lucasfilm producer Kathleen Kennedy about four months into the production of the upcoming Han Solo film. Um, uh, the Phil Lord and Miller, they claim that they left the project due to quote-unquote creative differences. Um, reports have surfaced that Lord and Miller actually clashed with Kennedy, Kennedy as well as Lawrence Kasdan, the screenwriter of the Han Solo film, over the direction of the film. Uh, the directors wanted to uh, approach the Han Solo film with a more comedic improv comedic uh, sensibility uh, much like you've seen in their previous films and uh, Lawrence Kasdan and Kathleen Kennedy they opted for a more serious tone that adhered to the script um, there were, without any real deviation from the written word uh, furthermore uh, Miller and Lord they were not pleased with not being able to direct the Han Solo film the way they wanted to and that they were pretty much underneath the, uh, the, uh, the thumb of Kennedy and Kasdan uh, uh, because because of this, uh, they were fired. And last Thursday, uh, Lucasfilm announced that uh, they replaced Lord and Miller with director Ron Howard. And Ron Howard is going to be taking over the film um, uh, next month once the production resumes on July 10th. So uh, Howard's going to direct the rest of the film. And he'll, fi- he'll also finish the remaining three weeks left of shooting along with an additional five weeks of reshoots. And also on top of that, more drama was reported that um, apparently the star of the film, Alden Ehrenreich, who plays Han Solo, you can also see him in the movie uh, Hail Caesar by the Coens, uh, Alden Ehrenreich also hired an acting coach uh, on the set uh, because Lucasfilm was uh, not entirely satisfied with the performance uh, that the directors were taking with his character. 
And that's pretty, and according to reports, that's a pretty unusual move for the studios to make so late into the production. So you're about four or five months into into the production and uh, Lucasfilm decides, okay, you know, we're not really feeling the direction that, you know, Aaron Reich's taking with the Han Solo character. We're not feeling how he's directed. So we're going to bring in, bring in an acting coach to kind of fine tune his performance, which, you know, if at, at that point, it kind of makes you wonder, well, wouldn't you have to end up reshooting the whole thing from scratch? Uh, which which I'm not sure Lucasfilm or Disney would want to do because, you know, the film is still scheduled to come out uh, next year on May 25th. So if they started from scratch, then they would have to delay the film, which would cost them more money than they've already spent. Um, you know, uh, thing, uh, looking, looking, at, looking at this uh, drama, it kind of brings up an interesting question where, you know, Okay, you're bringing Lucasfilm is bringing these directors, uh, like for example, in this case, uh, Phil Lord and Chris Miller. I mean, they've seen their previous work. You know, their work is mostly comedy. There's their work is mostly in the vein of just you know taking a script, not really fault, not strictly adhering to it, but also you know leaving room for improv improvisation in the dialogue or in the scenes or how the scenes flow, and that's their style. Now, knowing that. And then you hire these directors to create to direct this Han Solo movie, and then you fire them for the very thing that they're known for—that comedic sensibility, for a more serious tone. You know that kind of raises the question about a, you know, why hire, why hire these directors who have distinct, you know, distinct voices or distinct approaches to filmmaking, knowing that knowing that you're not going to allow them to really use the very trademarks that they're known for. And also, it, it brings another question, okay, well, are you, are you just looking for uh, directors that are just hired guns, directors that don't have that much clout, directors that really can't or, or rather would be unwilling to push back because for fear of, you know, not having these big budget opportunities ever again? Um it it it, it kind of makes you wonder like just what exactly is the the overall vision that that Lucasfilm is planning for their you know Star Wars films moving forward now uh now it, now it kind of makes me wonder about um Ryan Johnson and his and his uh, take on episode 8 now Ryan Johnson he's he's not only directing but he's also the sole screenwriter for episode 8 which is coming out uh in December now it kind of makes you wonder just how much latitude was he allowed in in creating the uh, screenplay and in taking the in taking the reins of these characters, is is it a case where where he kind of knows where his bread is buttered and he's just you know basically allowing letting Lucasfilm you know tell him what to do as far creatively and just going along with it with a little with some creative flourishes of his own here and there here and there wherever he can fit it in, or does he have more latitude than? than uh, Lord and Miller. But, you know, I mean, the, the argument could be made that, you know, because Star Wars is, you know, not just a film, film franchise, it's this whole cultural and pop culture, you know, franchise and phenomenon and merchandising and merchandising thing, this juggernaut where, where, you know, billions are on the line and, you know, all these films strike a certain tone and at any film, and each and every film has to has to adhere to that 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 similar tone throughout. So you see, like episode, the sequel trilogy, the prequel trilogy, the original trilogy, they all have a similar tone in that respect. And there's no real 
deviation. So something can't be strictly comedic. Something can't be extremely grim, dark. You know, there's always that that one safe, you know, middle of the road tone that that uh, Lucasfilm, you know, has to take because you know there are mil- billions on the line. Why take risks, creatively or narratively? But at the, on the same token, it's like because because you have so much money on the line, you have so much money to, you know, to, to spend, why not take risks? I mean, besides, you're looking at, you're looking at uh, these anthology films, which, by the way, aren't really breaking new ground. You know, they're just revisiting, revisiting old characters as, and old story threads that don't really need to be re- revisited. And they come off as, you know, non-essential films. They're, they're less, they're less films and more, you know, corporate products. Case in point, Rogue One. Uh, Rogue One, which, you know, a lot of people do like, but that's a non-essential film. I mean, do we really need to understand, to, to know the story about how the Rebels got the plans to the, to the Death Star? Of course not. All you got to do is watch A New Hope, and then there it is. It tells you the complete story there. Um, I don't know where, I don't know uh where the need for a Han Solo film, for a young Han Solo film, uh, uh, is, but beyond beyond just money, beyond just making gobs of money hand over fist. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I mean, for me, I think that, I think that uh, you know, I, I think about the uh, with this whole with this whole uh, drama behind uh, behind the firing of Lord and Miller and this Han Solo film. I'm thinking about the 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 review that is that I watched from Red, Red Letter Media and uh, uh then Red Letter Media they did a review of uh, Rogue One and Rich Evans actually raised a, a really good point and he said that the dirty secret the dirty little secret of Star Wars is that the universe itself is extremely limited now you have a galaxy you know you have a whole galaxy full of you know full of lore however what do you see in, in, in every in every Star Wars story, be it film or print or television, you see stormtroopers, you see Jedi, you see lightsabers, you see the Rebel Alliance versus the Empire, or in this case, the Resistance versus the First Order. You see the Force, you see droids, and that's pretty much it. You see that across the board, every everywhere you go. I mean, you would think that with such a a, a seemingly a vast galaxy that there could be room for much different stories within that Star Wars universe that doesn't necessarily have to rely on callbacks to, you know, Jedi and Sith or the Empire and the and the and the Rebels or those tried but true tropes that we've seen for the past 40 years. You would think that you would see much different uh stories that don't ne- that don't need to use any of those elements. You could still call it Star Star Wars, but you know, what 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 about the more I guess smaller, more personal stories that don't necessarily have, you know, dramatic, you know, galac- galaxy-wide stakes. You know, what about the k- small character stories? What about, you know, like small ensemble pieces where, you know, you know, it's just some people just tr- struggling, just trying to survive. You know, um, what about a crew? Cr- what about a small crew of ragtag uh, miscreants? You know, just traipsing the galaxy, getting into misadventures without necessarily. Running, running into the empire or or the first order or, or or what have you i don't know i mean you know you know looking looking at this whole drama and seeing and seeing the fact that uh that that these that these directors lord and miller weren't allowed to direct the film that they wanted to 
you know, it, it kind of, it kind of makes me, uh, makes me think about my own uh, fandom, my own Star Wars fandom. You know, I think that you know, all these years, you know, despite these movies coming out, I'm, I'm actually getting a little tired of Star Wars, if you ask me. Now, that being said, um, uh, episode eight and episode nine, which will conclude the sequel trilogy i'll i'll stick around for those films because i want to see how the story of ray finn and poe and kylo ren will end ultimately but you know when you see these uh these anthology films which are which are just you know way just just products really just just ways to justify lucasfilm's uh, bottom line uh and don't really have any narrative substance to them you see to a certain degree these these uh these graphic novels of Star Wars, uh and and comics which which are interesting but, I mean am I really gonna sit down and try to catch up with everything in the printed lore, even though they might take place you know between the the original trilogy and the sequel trilogy. I don't, I don't know I'm I'm just getting I'm just getting tired of the whole thing you know I'm I'm getting tired I'm getting tired of the whole marketing beast this marketing juggernaut that is the that is the star wars franchise now i am gonna i will finish the sequel trilogy you know i'll i'll stick around for those but all the all these spin-off films and and whatnot you know what if you're not gonna do anything different with these spin-off films if you're just gonna revisit old characters and strike the same you know the same tone uh, as the previous films then really what is the point i mean it's got to be more to it than just making money hand over fist i mean you would think that the, the that the star wars brand would would sell itself so you get you get people in the, in the door with star wars and then you can do something radically different that we've never seen before with it and it might succeed it might flop but at least you've tried but I don't know. What do I know? I'm not a businessman. I'm not. I'm not a high-powered executive. So I'm just, just uh, thinking out, thinking out loud. You know, spilling my thoughts into the ether, if you will. Uh, and as far as uh, as far as Ron Howard goes, uh, lastly, I think Ron. I mean, Ron Howard's a he's a very good filmmaker. Um, I do. I I would recommend. Speaking of Ron Howard, I do. I would recommend checking out uh, his 2013 feature called Rush. Which stars Chris Hemsworth and Daniel Bruhl. I thought that was was a pretty overlooked film. Uh, I recommend checking that out. Um, Ron Howard's pretty reliable. Um, I, I don't I don't know uh, how much of his of his take of his uh, approach would would uh, would uh, directly influence the film as a whole because it, because it sounds like um, uh, Lord and Miller pretty much shot the the majority of the film uh, majority of the script so far. So it does bring up an interesting question whether or not we'll be able to see either just one cut of the film with just like the Ron Howard cut. And even then, would only would Ron Howard himself only receive sole directorial credit? Or or would it be a case where all three directors get credit at the end? And it also brings up another question. Will we, will, will we be able to see two versions of the Han Solo film? Will it be the Ron Howard version and the Lord and Miller version as well? Um, would there be two competing versions on the market? Um, you know, time will tell. But you know what? We'll 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 just see how that unfolds uh, moving forward. So, if this when if and when this Han Solo film comes out next year, then you know hopefully the film will at least at the very least be enjoyable and not have 
you know, such a schizophrenic tone, which it sounds like it's going to have. If you're talking about comp the comedic sensibilities of Lord and Miller and the dramatic sensibilities of Howard, I don't see how the film is going to come off as co cohesive. But you know what? Like I said, time will tell. We'll have to wait until May of next year. Uh, let's see. So, yep. So that's about that. About uh, that about concludes uh this week's uh, episode of Victor's Corner. And once again, uh, thank you all for tuning in. You can also email the show at Codex Prime Podcast at gmail dot com, and also uh, you can also check us out on Facebook, obviously, uh, SoundCloud, YouTube, Twitter. Instagram. Am I missing something? I, f I feel like I always I, see, I always feel like I'm missing something with this rundown. I think that's I think that's pretty much it. Uh, do I have a question of the week? I don't know if I have a question of the week to be honest. See, I, I was thinking about I was I was thinking about doing a, a question of the week before uh, before starting this, but I really couldn't come up with anything. Um, I don't know. Well, okay, all right. Here's one. A uh, question of the week. Since we're, since we're halfway through 2017, what is your favorite film of 2017 so far? And what is the film that you're looking forward to seeing the most uh, in the second half of the of this year? So let us know uh, in the comments below, or let us know uh, uh, via Codex Prime Podcast at gmail.com. Once again, thank you all for tuning in. I'm Victor Omoyo, and this was Victor's Corner. Hopefully, we will see you next Wednesday at 1 p.m. Uh, on the Codex Prime podcast. Uh, just to let you know, all throughout the month of July, uh, the Codex Prime podcast will be will be on Facebook Live Wednesday afternoon afternoons at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And then once August rolls around, we will be back to our regu regularly scheduled uh, recording time at 6 p.m. on Tuesdays. So once again, thank you for tuning in. I'm Victor Omoyo. Peace out, nerds. <laughs>